BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. With breathtaking speed, the Taliban have regained control of Afghanistan for the first time since American military forces drove them out 20 years ago. Collapse of the U.S.-backed government triggered fear and panic in Kabul, and so many questions about what comes next as the Taliban takes over. How did U.S. intelligence so badly underestimate the strength of the Taliban, while overestimating the ability of the Afghan military to hold them off? And how is the Afghan community here in California reacting? That's next on Forum, right after the news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. Well, there is chaos and fear in Afghanistan today with the Taliban back in power and a lot of unknowns about what comes next. The Associated Press is reporting that the head of Central Command met face-to-face with Taliban leaders, and they say they reached an agreement to allow for a somewhat orderly evacuation process from the Kabul airport. The Biden administration, as you may know, deployed 6,000 troops to secure the evacuation of U.S. personnel and others. But the sudden collapse of the U.S.-backed government has triggered panic in parts of the country, along with deep concerns about what's next. President Biden is speaking this afternoon from the White House, and we're going to take several looks at uh, different aspects of the situation this hour. And joining us first to talk about how we got here is Craig Whitlock, an investigative reporter with The Washington Post. He's author of the forthcoming book, The Afghanistan Papers. Craig Whitlock, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to begin uh, before we get to you by playing a couple of cuts from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. The first cut here uh, was in June. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Uh, So I wouldn't um, necessarily equate the departure of our forces uh, in July, August, or by early September with some kind of immediate uh, deterioration. Uh, in the uh, in the situation. So that was in June. And then just yesterday on CNN, here he is again. This is not Saigon. We went to Afghanistan 20 years ago with one mission. And that mission was to deal with the folks who attacked us on 9-11. And we have succeeded in that mission. The objective that we set, bringing uh, those who attacked us to justice, uh, making sure that they couldn't attack us again from Afghanistan, we've succeeded in that mission. Uh, and in fact, we succeeded a while ago. Uh, and at the same time, uh, remaining in Afghanistan, um, for another f- one, five, ten years 
is not in the national interest. Craig Whitlock, I think no matter how you slice things, uh, the U.S. at the very least was surprised by what has unfolded. Um, why do you think that happened? You know, that's that's really the question of the moment. Um, and I think you do need to look back in the last 20 years, though. And one constant is that the U.S. government and the U.S. military, they really never understood Afghanistan. In the reporting we did for the Afghanistan papers, uh, there were confidential interviews the government had done with a number of key figures in the war who very bluntly admitted that uh, they, they just fundamentally didn't understand Afghanistan. Uh, they didn't understand the culture. They didn't understand the politics. And even though we've been there for 20 years, I think what's happening now is is another reflection of how we just fail to grasp how things work there, even our allies, and certainly the Taliban, we've underestimated uh, their strength and resiliency for, for the last 20 years. Is it fair to say that the U.S. went into Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago with, with good intentions? Well, the, the, the mission in 2001, the goal and objective was very clear back in 2001. You'll remember this was, of course, in response to the September 11th attacks. Uh, the whole idea of invading Afghanistan in 2001 was to destroy al-Qaeda and to eliminate al-Qaeda as a threat uh, to the United States. There was great fear that a number, another September 11th type attack could occur. Uh, you know, and the fact is that goal was really accomplished within the first six months of the war. Uh, Al-Qaeda's leadership was either captured, killed, or had fled Afghanistan by March 2002. The problem is the mission drifted pretty quickly after that, and the United States never really was clear on what it was trying to accomplish. Was it trying to turn Afghanistan into a new democracy? Was it trying to protect women's rights? Uh, was it who was the enemy? Was it the Taliban? Uh, we never really sorted that out. So yes, in the beginning, this, this was seen as a justified war. It had great support in the United States, but gradually over time, that support has faded. Is it fair to say, based on your reporting, that the war really should have ended a you know, long time ago? Uh, and, and if so, what were some of the fundamental mistakes that you know, have led you to that conclusion? Well, you know, it's a lot easier to start a war than it is to end one. Uh, we're seeing that now. We saw that years ago. Uh, Biden is the fourth president who has tried to end the war, who has tried to end U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan. And we see what a hash of it his administration has made. Even though he tried to pull out U.S. troops and had most of them pulled out, they were completely unprepared for what's been happening in the past week. Uh, so, you know, it, it's difficult. I think Yes, the, the mission was, the original mission was accomplished early, but again, in the research we did for the Afghanistan papers, what was striking is how after 2002, there really was no plan. There was no strategy. Uh, there are a number of generals and ambassadors who bluntly admitted that uh, they, they were sent to Afghanistan with no strategy. Just, you know, their, their marching orders were to uh, fight the Taliban and help the Afghan government, but there were no benchmarks set for when they might try and withdraw. And really, that's been the story of the war for the last uh, 18 or 19 years. There's never really been a clear uh, benchmark that we've been aiming for for when we could leave. You know, over the years, we've heard presidents and administration officials talk about all the good things the U.S. was doing there in terms of building infrastructure, uh, schools, uh, improving the rights and situation for girls and women. Um, 
How much of that was just smoke and mirrors? I think some of it was very real. We, you know, the United States spent uh, more money trying to rebuild Afghanistan and transform it into a modern nation than it spent on all of Western Europe with the Marshall Plan after World War II. And that's, that's inflation-adjusted dollars. You know, overall, the war has cost uh, the United States at least a trillion dollars in direct cost. You know, there was a, a major, major effort to try and lift Afghanistan uh, out of poverty, to try and modernize the nation, to build schools and wells and clinics. Uh, unfortunately, the political foundation that was laid on uh, was a house of sand. The Afghan government, our allies, uh, were hopelessly corrupt. And that was a problem that's only gotten worse over the years. And the Afghan government uh, never really gained legitimacy or support from their own people. So that's the result we're seeing now is the Afghan government, uh, which we had propped up for so long, has, has disintegrated before our eyes. And so all these other improvements we had helped make in Afghanistan, such as schools, women's rights, uh, you know, just general welfare improvements, you know, they're really at risk at the moment. We're talking about the deteriorating situation in Afghanistan with Craig Whitlock, a Washington Post reporter. He's author of the forthcoming book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Um, we have a, a, a large Afghan community here in the Bay Area. Many people very concerned about what's happening there. So I want to give out the phone number right now. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum for your comments and questions. And of course, you can email us as well. As well. It's forum at kqed.org. Um, based on what you're saying, Craig, it seems as if Joe Biden, President Biden, was was fairly justified in pulling out uh, troops and really just completing the evacuation of, uh, of, of embassy personnel and so on. And yet, it seems it could have been done in a much more orderly, thoughtful process. Uh, what, what, what's your take on all that? Well, I, I think that's a correct view. I think Biden came to the conclusion that we weren't accomplishing anything there, that you know, the Afghan government uh, needed to stand on its own two feet if it was going to be able to survive. There wasn't much more the U.S. military could accomplish by staying there, except that, frankly, we would remain a target. Uh, the Taliban uh, essentially cut a deal with the Trump administration in early 2020, whereby uh, the United States agreed to leave Afghanistan gradually, and the Taliban would agree to stop uh, taking shots at U.S. soldiers, you know, that that held. And I think Biden uh, agreed with Trump that it was time to end the war. Uh, but certainly his plan for ending it, uh, for for trying to prepare for the ascendance of the Taliban, you know, they just completely miscalculated what was going on under the surface. Their intelligence assessments were way off. Uh, and they just, you know, they're rushing at the last minute to try and uh, evacuate people. In, in some ways, it is worse than Saigon. These images we're seeing from Afghanistan right now of people uh, panicking at the airport and trying to climb aboard U.S. military planes is just heartbreaking. And these were things that uh, Biden and his administration had promised would not happen as recently as a few weeks ago. So it, it, it is heartbreaking to watch. They weren't prepared. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, it, it's a lot easier to start a war than it is to end one. And they're there's no easy way to pull out. We saw the president of Afghanistan, President Ghani, uh, leaving, I think, for Uzbekistan uh, as things were falling apart. 
Um, what does that tell you about uh, not just his leadership, but all those who came before him going back several decades? Is it a, a matter of corruption, a lack of commitment to the country, you know, self-interest more than anything? I think all those factors play a role. I think one of the saddest legacies of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan is we tried to uh, establish a democracy in Afghanistan. And I think our intentions were noble. People will remember perhaps uh, the first national presidential elections they had in Afghanistan in 2004 when Hamid Karzai was elected president. This is the first time they had free and fair national elections in Afghanistan. And there seemed to be uh, you know, a, a real legitimate popular support for Hamid Karzai at the time. But in every election since then, uh, including Karzai's re-election and Ghani's two elections, have been just a disaster. Uh, the United States tried to set up this democratic system, but the system there fell apart at the seams. And we kind of stood by unsure what to do, how to make things better. So even though Ghani's been the president, he really lacked popular legitimacy. And given that the war was dragging on so long, uh, many Afghans were just, you know, they were as, as fed up, if not more fed up with the Afghan government than they were with the Taliban. And so they never really had legitimacy in the eyes of the people. I think that's correct. Yeah. What are you looking for now uh, in the coming days, hours, really, and weeks uh, in terms of uh, what's happening on the ground and the impact it could have not just in Afghanistan, but, of course, uh, for those who are trying to get out as well? Yeah. So first and foremost, right now, the concern is are the humanitarian implications. You know, the Taliban has swept through the entire country really quickly. Uh, what's going to happen to all Afghans? Uh, but especially those who have helped the United States. There's a plan to evacuate some of them, but that's going really slowly. So that's something in the next days and hours we're really watching closely. Yeah. All right. Craig Whitlock, a Washington Post reporter, author of the forthcoming book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Thank you so much for joining us this hour. Of course. All right. I'll give out the number again. We're going to continue and broaden this conversation. It's 866-733-6786. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. Much more to come. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim talking about the situation in Afghanistan. And joining us now, uh, some additional voices uh, to help fill out the picture. Nahid Fatahi is a human rights activist, psychotherapist, and an adjunct faculty member at Pacific Oaks College in San Jose. Also joining us, Anand Gopal, journalist and author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Nahid, let me begin with you. Uh, what are your uh, concerns? I'm sure there are many. What are you hearing from the Afghan community uh, in California? Um, my concerns are um, the rights of the women, the rights of the children, and the rights of the minorities in Afghanistan. Um, 
we, um, this is something that we foresaw as human rights activists um, when um, President Trump started the peace talks with the Taliban. Um, in, in that regard, we started it, um, I actually started it a petition requesting the um, American government um, to explicitly um, talk about and hold the Taliban accountable um, to adhere to the human rights and women's rights inside Afghanistan in those peace talks and to be um, explicit about them. However, um, that petition um, got um, the media attention and people's attention, uh, but never the government's att attention. Um, moreover, uh, when President Biden took the office, um, I um, the same petition went to him, asking him for the same um, for the same statements, for the same facts, um, asking them to keep the Taliban accountable um, for um, to protect the human rights in Afghanistan, women's rights, and the rights of the minorities. However, we yeah. heard nothing from the government. And so that's what I'm worried about, that um, these rights may vanish very soon. Anangopal, uh, what are your thoughts about, in particularly that last question there, the, the issue that so many people are worried about, which is the fate of women and girls in Afghanistan? Well, people are right to be worried because uh, the Taliban taking over cities like Kabul, where the culture of um, people there is very different from the countryside where the Taliban comes from, is certainly certainly very alarming. Uh, I think it's important to understand, though, that Afghanistan is 70% rural, and where the Taliban come from, uh, there's a traditional lifestyle and People have been suffering there for 20 years for a host of reasons, not just because of Taliban rule, but also because of airstrikes, bombings, roadside bombs. Uh, I was recently in the Afghan countryside in the province of Helmand, and the daily life of men, women, and children there is um, pretty staggering to see what people have to put up with for over two decades. Most of that violence isn't really, um, isn't really seen by, by us because we tend to hear what's happening in the major cities. But uh, now that the Taliban have taken over Kabul, it's extremely alarming because, of course, even though there's now peace in the countryside, there's a new set of problems that uh, Kabul is going to face with uh, women's rights. And in terms of the Taliban's attitude toward women's rights, is it any different than it was 20 years ago? I don't think it's any different than it was 20 years ago. But uh, again, the Taliban are a kind of a reflection of very conservative attitudes in, in, in the southern countryside. And, and those attitudes haven't changed over 20 years. I mean, if you travel in provinces like Kandahar and Helmand, you will not see women outside of the house, whether it's in government-controlled areas or in Taliban-controlled areas. The U.S. empowered warlords who have had terrible human rights uh, records, also horrible records against women. Um, in the Civil War in the 90s, there was horrible stories of what these warlords did to women. And these are the same people that the U.S. brought into power and put them in, in positions like governorships and chiefs of police. And it's one of the reasons why the government has such little legitimacy. I want to bring in another voice now. Aisha Wahab is a council member with the city of Hayward. And uh, Councilwoman Wahab, welcome to Forum. Thank you. What uh, what are you hearing from your constituents, from people in and around Hayward, uh, or for that matter, throughout California, uh, as we see this unfold? 
largely the constituents who are new arrivals are deeply disappointed. And um, the Afghans that have been here for several generations, if not um, several decades, deeply feel that it's disappointing to see for the second time the country fall, um, as well as the, just the feeling of hopelessness and abandonment um, and despair. Um, people are concerned. Yeah. And, and what about that difference in terms of how long folks have been here? Uh, how How is there a difference in how they're adapting to life here? Uh, I mean, uh, you talk about women and girls who have come over, say, somewhat recently. I mean, how are they doing here? Uh, they're struggling. Um, you know, a lot of the teachers in, in the area, um, in fact, the Chabot president actually reached out to me um, but a lot of the teachers in the area are very concerned ab- about the students that they are, you know, currently teaching. Um, language barriers, uh, just the socioeconomic difference amongst the average American versus the new arrival from Afghanistan. Um, there are significant concerns as to what the future holds. Um, but I think that the people are resilient. And in the United States, there's a lot of opportunity to grow and learn and, and move forward. But back home, um, for a lot of these people, they see their cousins, their friends, their um, aunts and neighbors and so forth uh, struggling. Um, you know, right now, we are seeing what is happening with the Taliban being on their best behavior. And let's be honest, they are on their best behavior because the international community is watching. When the hashtags die down and the trending of Afghanistan um, kind of die down, what will happen to the future of Afghan women and children, but not just them, ethnic and religious minorities? Yeah. Nahid uh, Fatahi, what would you add to that in terms of especially how, how uh, you know, girls and women here are doing, how they're adapting? We just heard uh, Councilwoman Wahab say they're struggling. Is that what you're hearing? Absolutely. They're struggling. Um, they have entered this new country um, a, a new language and a different culture. Um, however, as um, Aisha mentioned, Afghans are extremely resilient um, and um, they can adapt quickly and easily. Um, but the women inside of Afghanistan, what we fear is, um, as Aisha mentioned, that once the hashtag uh, hashtags die down and the news stop in Afghanistan, um, that the woman will go back to um, 1994 um, and, and the 90s mm. um, of Afghanistan. Which is terrifying, I'm sure. Extremely. Um, here's some comments from listeners. Rachel writes, I've been a huge Biden supporter, but I'm heartbroken at how he's handled this. Every word I've heard from him or the administration seems devoid of the compassion we're used to from them. Trump and Pompeo left a horrific agreement and the military and the CIA warned this would happen. Biden has bungled this so badly that Iran and China will be the new heroes. I'm heartsick. And then Curtis writes, isn't the primary reason for our 20-year war in Afghanistan because it was a political hot potato? Any president who would end the war would have been blamed politically for any future uh, terrorist attack in the U.S. Uh, I want to go to calls, but maybe, uh, Anand, if could you respond to that notion that uh, the reason we stayed in so long is that no one really wanted to pull the plug for fear of the political repercussions? Yeah, I think that's right. And as Craig mentioned earlier, this war was basically won in 2001 or 2002. Um, there was no Taliban in 2002 and 2003. Um, and the Taliban slowly reconstituted itself. And I think every administration realized at some point that it was an unwinnable war. Um, probably it was only, it took Trump, ironically, to, to kind of break the consensus. 
All right. I do want to go to the calls. And if you do have family or friends in Afghanistan, if you've served in Afghanistan, what is your take on the current situation? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And let's go now uh, to Santa Barbara. Wayne, you're first. Hi. Thank you. Um, You know, I just want to say I remember what happened to the Russians when they went into Afghanistan. It did not go well. And they left, and that was a humiliating defeat. Um, We announcing a time frame of withdrawal, saying we'll be out by September 1st. Um, Arrangements should have been made for us to make that announcement, but be out by July 1st, leaving a 60-day window, a cushion, so to speak, um, a grace period for us to get out smoothly without the Taliban chomping on our heels. Um, I felt that Afghanistan would fall a lot faster. I, I, I figured ta- the Taliban would get the momentum they've got. And as an Afghan soldier fighting the Taliban, I don't see what their incentive is. If the country is inevitably going to fall into their hands, hmm. I just don't see why they would fight the Taliban. Yeah. And I frankly don't think they really did, yeah. based on the reports I've heard. Thank Wayne, thank, thank you very much, Wayne, for that. And uh, Anand Gopal, uh, what, is the, what is the attitude in the countryside? You know, we hear a lot about what's going on in Kabul, uh, the capital. But what about the rest of the country? How are people out there on the, in the countryside reacting? to what's happening now? Well, for the first time in 20 years, most of the countryside is at peace. Um, the, biggest, the biggest problem that people faced is instability in these areas. Uh, night raids, airstrikes, roadside bombs, kidnappings. And what I found um, talking to Afghans from all walks of life is they were desperate for some sort of stability, men and women. And even if that meant having the Taliban take over, they prefer, prefer that to living in the crossfire between two sides. And so there's some relief, you're saying? There's there's some relief. Um, of course, it's different in the cities, but uh, in the countryside, there is some relief. Yeah. And uh, in terms of what you're hearing, Nahid Fatahi, uh, from people over there, I, it sounds like you're not hearing anything uh, re- resembling relief, uh, p- primarily, I guess, from, from women, girls. Um, and then are there people here in California who have family members? Are there, are there divided families who are desperately hoping to be reunited? Um, yeah, I, I, I have relatives. I'm, I'm from the western part of Afghanistan, Herat, and I have relatives there still living there. Uh, when Herat collapsed last week, um, the people of Herat were mourning this loss. Um, so I, I hear the other side of the story that the people are not um, happy, nor they're hopeful with the Taliban. That said, Afghanistan has been in a war for the past 45 years, and people are desperately waiting for peace. But peace at what price, right? The seven years that the Taliban were governing in Afghanistan, there were, it, the, it, the, the country was peaceful, but not because it was it was real peace for the lack of a better word, but because everyone was were terrified of what would happen to them hmm. if they did not adhere to the laws of the Taliban. Yeah. Anand Gopal, uh, how does this scramble the, the geopolitical situation there? Uh, there I've heard that Pakistan is uh, fairly closely aligned with the Taliban. Uh, is that true? And, and what, are, what about countries like Russia, China? What's going on, or Iran for that matter? 
Yeah, Pakistan is closely aligned with the Taliban, and I think that they view the Taliban takeover as very positive because they see they purely view Afghanistan in terms of their rivalry with India, and so actual Afghans' interests and needs are are nowhere part of the calculation for for Pakistan, unfortunately. Uh, and for other regional actors, I think most most sides are looking for stability. They're worried about not having massive re- refugee flows, um, such as Iran, for example. One of the heartbreaking uh, developments is that as soon as the Taliban captured Kabul, uh, many of these countries shut their visa processes for, for Afghans. And so there were millions of Afghans who could have fled to safety, but um, did not because these countries didn't, didn't allow them to do so. Hmm. What do you make of, uh, and one of the, uh, I think, uh, listeners commented about the lack of, apparent lack of uh, compassion or empathy from the Biden administration. I mean, the president himself, well known for that. Uh, There has been a bit, uh, he's been a bit short in that regard. Uh, What is your take on that? Yeah, it's extraordinarily callous, especially when you see scenes in in Kabul at the airport. I think the president is um, looking very closely at the the poll numbers, and it's clear, for better or for worse, that most Americans, I think, aren't too concerned about what's happening, or they, they may feel sad about what's happening, but they're, you know, people are throwing their hands up and saying, look, we've done this for 20 years and um, it's, it's not our problem anymore. Aisha, what, what do you make of that disconnect? Because here you have in California, the Bay Area, Hayward, your constituents, uh, very concerned, distraught. And yet you have, as we just heard Anand Gopal say, you know, many Americans are just like, it's time to get out. We're done. Look, we have our own struggles in the United States with the coronavirus, the economy, housing, and so much more. That This is across the nation. Um, the president is responsible for how we withdraw, but he is not responsible for all of this. Um, we are living in a polarized uh, United States, but we had two Republican presidents and two Democrat presidents overseeing Afghanistan. And to say, I just want to state this clearly because I've heard this over and over again, the Taliban had nothing to do with 9-11. Al-Qaeda, first off, Osama bin Laden was killed on May 2nd, 2011 in Pakistan. Uh, With that being said, that was 10 years ago. Hmm. So we didn't necessarily find or fight uh, or win anything in 2001, 2002. That's the fact is the Taliban was underestimated and misunderstood. And this is a strategic piece of land that has no functioning government under tribal leaders without unification. And I will say that China, Russia, Iran, India, and Pakistan are all interested. Many of them have already stated that they will be supporting the Taliban, and that is not good for the United States in the long term. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones now, and we're going to go up to Davis and Marianne. You're next. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to raise a few points or maybe get answers to some of these. I've not heard these discussed at all in any coverage, including NPR. One is historic as Taliban and their opinions suspect they're with modern weapons. I don't think they're riding in with horses supplying these weapons. Where are these weapons coming from? That's the source of trouble. And the issue is I think we have Marianne, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, we're just not, we have a bad connection with you. But let me put that first question about where did all the weapons come from uh, to you, Anand uh, Gopal? Uh, and, and also, what happened to all these hundreds of thousands of security forces that the U.S. said that they trained? Well, first of all, that number is vastly inflated. Uh, the U.S. said they trained upwards of 300,000, or that's the, the size of the Afghan army. Most of these are, go- or many of these are ghost soldiers. Um, just an example. What does that mean? Uh, people who uh, exist on paper, 
but um, aren't actually real soldiers. Um, it's a, a form of corruption. Um, it's not just ghost soldiers. There are ghost schools. Uh, there's, you know, people talk about the number of schools that have been built, girls' schools and uh, other schools. There have been schools that have been built, but also there's been extraordinary amounts of corruption and the number of uh, schools that actually exist are far lower than what's been reported. So, uh, again, the, the government was in many ways uh, like a paper tiger. And so when, the moment that uh, they didn't have air support anymore, um, it, it collapsed rapidly. Yeah. And what about the weapons? Where, where did they get all these weapons? Or do they not well, have as many weapons? I mean, it sounds like the things yeah. just sort of uh, collapsed. Well, the Afghan the Afghan government side w- was equipped with some of the fanciest and most expensive weaponry in the world from the U- from the U.S. And on the other side, the Taliban hardly have any weapons. They have basic k- Kalashnikovs and old rifles and weapons they buy in the black market. But they won not because of their military genius or because of any um, tactical genius. They won because the other side didn't have the will to fight. And what happens to all that military equipment now? Does it uh, basically fall into the hands of the Taliban? And how concerned should we be about that? Yeah, the Taliban now have an air force. The, um, many of the helicopter pilots have uh, defected over to the Taliban, and there's videos being posted of Taliban helicopter flights. They have uh, their American Humvees, there's tanks. Um, all of this military equipment is in their hands now. And who moves in to help them train for that? I mean, is it the Pakistanis? Is it the you know, who, who would it be? Yeah, the Pakistanis might. I mean, historically, they've uh, played a role as trainers. Um, Al-Qaeda historically, historically has also played a role. Mm. It remains to be seen um, because now they've had 20 years of experience as well. Yeah. So they, you know, they'll have a lot of connections yeah. and they'll be able to develop that. All right, I'm going to ask all of our guests to stick around. We've got more to talk about. And you can join us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you prefer, send us an email. It's forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And we continue our conversation now about the situation in Afghanistan. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. And with us, Nahid Fatahi, human rights activist, psychotherapist, also an adjunct uh, faculty member at Pacific Oaks College in San Jose. Anand Gopal, journalist and author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. And Aisha Wahab, council member in the city of Hayward. I'll give out the number again. It's 866-733-6786. And let me ask you, uh, Councilwoman Wahab, what are you hearing uh, in terms of uh, what's being done to help folks who are trying to get out? Uh, You may be hearing a lot from your constituents who are trying to bring uh, relatives uh, and others into the U.S. What, What are you hearing? Our Congress members are looking to expedite the special immigrant visa that is available to um, Afghans that have served and supported the American troops. This is expediting process for P1, P2, and and the special immigrant visas. I will say, however, a lot of people on the ground here in the U.S. are trying to send money to Afghanistan. 
but the Afghan banks um, currently are not able to give out cash to the, the Afghans in Afghanistan. They have run out of cash, in fact. Um, so there is a big concern as to what's happening there. But the reality is that a huge refugee um, boom is going to happen. Um, those that are capable of leaving the country will be able to leave the country, but the poor and the you know, defenseless and hopeless um, will still remain and be under Taliban rule. All right, let's go to the phones now, and we're going to go next to Jan in South San Francisco. Hi, Jan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Joe Biden was right to abruptly end our involvement uh, in this war because, right, we have been there 20 years, and we have nothing to show for it. The only people who have benefited from this war is the defense industry. They've gotten incredibly wealthy off of this war. Meanwhile, back at home, we have issues of our infrastructure. we got a homeless problem. Teachers aren't getting paid what they deserve. list goes on and on and on. Uh, finally, I just want to ask a question to your panel. Why is it that I have never heard politicians, I've never heard the media ask, how can we afford this war? How can we pay for it? But on the other hand, we have, for example, a budget reconciliation bill going through uh, both houses. And the narrative, it's always, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? But again, for um, Afghanistan, I've never heard politicians, I've never heard the media question, hmm. where is the money coming from? Who's going to pay for it? Why is that? Yeah, Jan, that's a great question. Uh, it seems that uh, you never hear, rarely hear questions about the magnitude of the defense, uh, the defense budget and so on. And of course, there are also uh, and, and you can speak to this, Nahid, not just the uh, financial cost, but the emotional cost, the uh, cost to the families, the Gold Star families who lost loved ones, people who came back and are physically or mentally disabled in one way or another, and all the refugees as well. I mean, the cost, it's, it's, it's almost incalculable, isn't it? Um, absolutely. Um, the, this cost um, will haunt um, not just the Americans who have been involved there and our veterans um, and their families, but also Afghans. And it will turn into that intergenerational trauma that Afghans are already dealing with. And um, Americans um, have seen um, some sides of it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's in Anand Gopal. Uh, any thoughts from you about, uh, you know, the, the, we've seen one president after another clearly knowing or at least having a good sense that things are not going as well as uh, the public thought they were or were told that they were. Um, and, and yet, you know, it just one year after another, the budgets get renewed and it, it, it just was it was unending until Biden at least pulled the plug on it. Although, you know, a lot of questions about how that has unfolded. Well, yeah, and and the billions that have been been spent, uh, actually, a lot of that money actually didn't go to Afghans. Uh, you can go around the country and see roads that were built by American contractors that are in states of disrepair, um, as buildings that are half finished. Uh, a lot of this money was uh, contracted to defense contractors in D.C. who then subcontracted it to local Afghans. And it was an extraordinary amount of corruption that it wasn't just Afghan corruption. Really, the corruption started here in the U.S. with these contracting schemes. And so it's even worse to think that not only was all this money spent, but all this money was more or less wasted. Uh, some more listener comments here. Michael writes, one principal motivation for invading Afghanistan was to keep terrorist-oriented organizations from using the country as a platform for launching terrorist attacks against the U.S. and our allies by reducing our presence there to zero. We have abandoned uh, any hope of achieving that goal. But let me ask you, Anand Gopal, you know, 
Bin Laden was killed by U.S. forces. He was in Pakistan uh, 10 years ago. How critical was the fact that you, the U.S. was in Afghanistan at the time? I mean, they did fly over the border from Afghanistan. I'm sure they had uh, good intelligence or sources on the ground uh, because they were there. Would that have mattered if they, were, if they had gotten out earlier? I'm not sure that that would have mattered because, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda's leadership was in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. Um, they, they fled the country by March or April of 2002. And then subsequent to that, uh, with the start of the Arab Spring, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other extremist groups took root around the world in Syria and Iraq and parts of Africa. So this is no longer just purely a problem that could be isolated to Afghanistan. And having a few thousand troops on the ground in Afghanistan is not going to solve the larger problem. But I mean, even the ability for those helicopters to fly from Afghanistan, you know, under the radar. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to do that, I guess, if they didn't have, you know, some so much sway in the country. Well, perhaps they have other bases in the region. I mean, this is, they have bases all around mm-hmm. uh, there. You know. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones now, and we're going to go next to Robert in Concord. Welcome. Yes. Hi. My question is: Has Pakistan been so supportive of the Pal- Taliban over the years? They've given them safe haven and refuge. Yeah. is in it for Pakistan. Uh, Anand Gopal? Well, first and foremost, Pakistan views Afghanistan um, as a battlefield against India. Um, and when the U.S. invaded in 2001, it put in place a very India-friendly government. And uh, so uh, Pakistan saw this as a threat to its interests. And that's the first reason why it began to support the Taliban. The Taliban wasn't created by Pakistan. It was an Afghan phenomenon. But once it it emerged, Pakistan tried to manipulate the Taliban to use it for its interests. All right. Uh, Let's go back to the phones now. And Phil in Burlingame, you're next. Hi. Um, my questions really have to do with uh, the Russians had something to do with financing and supporting the Taliban, you know, payback for the Mujahideen in the U.S. And, and the second part really has to do with why did the U.S., um, the current leader of the Taliban was released from Pakistan because the United States advocated on his behalf. You know, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> go, Paul, you want to take either one of those or both? Yeah, sure. The current leader, um, he was imprisoned by Pakistan because he was trying to um, strike a peace deal with the Americans back, uh, this is maybe 10, 15 years ago. And Pakistan does not like it when the Taliban try to act independently of them. And so that's why he was imprisoned. Um, And in terms of the Russian support, um, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that the Russians have supported the Taliban. Uh, Taliban funding is mostly, as we know, no self-finance. They um, tax people in their areas. They tax businesses in their areas, and they also are involved in the drug trade. So um, they have a lot of in, um, internal re- revenue that's generated. Yeah. This this may be a, a question better put to Craig Whitlock, uh, who was with us earlier in the hour. But, you know, we saw what happened with Russia in Afghanistan in the 70s and how they got bogged down. Um, Anangopal, did, did the U.S. learn nothing from that? Or did they learn the wrong things? Uh, they've learned nothing. They learned nothing from that. In fact, many of the strategies the Russians tried, for example, creating militias, etc., the U.S. did the exact same thing and, you know, had more or less the exact same results. So they, they learned nothing from that experience. Yeah. Um, Aisha Wahab, uh, I know you're keeping a close eye on what's happening over there. And I, I'm wondering, what are your, you know, <laughs> I don't know, hopes may not be the right word, but uh, do you think there's any chance that the Taliban will have a, a sort of a legitimate government that will in any way be an improvement over what uh, the Afghan people have endured for the last two decades? I think it's the responsibility of international communities to put pressure on the Taliban. 
I do want to say in the 90s when the Taliban came about, uh, they were seeking legitimacy from the United States and many international communities. Um, the only countries that paid attention to the Taliban were three countries, uh, one being Saudi Arabia, the other being Pakistan. Um, and the reality is that that influence of extreme um, Islamic beliefs uh, actually made them turn a little bit darker, in my opinion. I personally think that the international community, with attention through diplomacy, uh, through humanitarian aid, need to focus on Pakistan to ensure that um, peace is maintained and hopefully in the future something else uh, better can come along. To be honest, I will say also half of Pakistan by international law belongs to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is very much interested in becoming independent by touching the sea. And if so, they would be less reliant on Pakistan. This is a big nuanced game. It is called the Great Game, if not Great Game 2.0. It is history, and we are not learning from the history that we've seen. All right. Let's see if we can get one more call in here, and we'll go to San Francisco. And Haiza, welcome. Hi, is that me? Yes. Hi. Um, speaking of uh, corruption, did, is there anyone going to track how much cash, money, et cetera, the outgoing government took with them? <laughs> Usually when someone leaves, they definitely empty out the banks. Maybe that's why there's no cash left. Yeah, well, Anand Gopal, I, I imagine this has been happening for a long time, the, the corruption and the lining of pockets. And uh, you know, where where did the money go if we, we don't see it, you know, on the ground? Well, there are fabulous villas in, in Dubai, the city of Dubai, for example, that were more or less paid for by U.S. taxpayers. Um, this is all money that was paid to the Afghan government and um, senior officials got rich off this and, and built second and third homes for them. So um, most of that money is not in the country. Yeah. Um, coming to the end of the hour, but uh, President Biden will be speaking uh, in very shortly. Uh, what will you be listening for? Well, I would, to start with, I think, um, as others said, a little bit of compassion. Um, this is a, a mess that even if it was right that um, the war should end, this is not the way to do it, um, where people are hanging off planes and mm -hmm. other hor horrific scenes. So I think that's really important to, yeah. to and, protect that. And just quickly, Nahid, uh, what can people in the Bay Area do to help, if anything? Um, contact their um, congressmen and women to put pressure on the Bidens administration um, so then they continue to put pressure on the Taliban to honor Afghan women's right and to pressure on Pakistan to stop enabling the Taliban and to stop their funding to the Taliban. Yeah. All right. You're listening to KQED Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Let me give out the phone number again. Uh, we're talking about Afghanistan this hour. We still have 10 minutes left. I misread the clock, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Uh, just full transparency there. Uh, don't go away. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook. It's at KQED Forum at KQED Forum, or if you prefer, send us an email. It's forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, uh, what can regular people do to help the situation in Afghanistan and call on their governments and seem to have uh, uh, given up on Afghan people and the many refugees that need urgent help? I know you were talking about that a moment ago, Nahid Fatahi. Uh, what, what uh, I know that uh, the local congressman, Eric Swalwell, had something uh, that he tweeted out this morning about what can be done or what, uh, if you have questions, who to contact. Um, what, what else are you hearing in terms of community groups or the, 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 the federal government as well? Um, I haven't 
the only thing that we hear is that the um, government is helping um, those Afghans who um, help the American government um, with their SIV visas to expedite that procedure. Um, however, let us not forget that uh, maybe um, half a million, at most a million, and, and this is a huge number I know, will leave Afghanistan based on those merits or will become refugees. Um, but continue to fight for those who will remain in Afghanistan, um, which will be the 27, 28 million people desperate um, for, uh, for help. Hmm. Here's a, another comment from a listener who tweets, why such a surprise? It's the same mistakes made over and over. Ignored culture, history, society, and puppet government corruption. We threw money and weapons at the problem as usual without considering hearts and minds. Uh, Anand Gopal, uh, where does this leave the U.S., uh, both in the region, uh, but also uh, in terms of its international reputation? Uh, we have so many people over there still, uh, interpreters and others, trying to get out, wanting to get out. They were told they would be protected. Where does that leave the U.S.? Well, the U.S. has now suffered two major defeats in the last 20 years, and it has uh, projected itself as a defender of human rights and democracy. And um, unfortunately, the record on the ground doesn't uh, match up with that. So I think U.S. legitimacy and credibility around the globe is at a uh, point lower today than it's been in a really long time. All right. Let's go back to the phones again. It's 866-733-6786. And let's go to Oakland and Hussein. Welcome. Hussein, are you there? Yes. Uh, go ahead. Thanks yeah, for taking go, my call. Yeah, go right ahead. Um, you know, before 9-11, Afghanistan was a poorly self-sufficient nation. Right now, they're getting food, just basic food from Pakistan, electricity from Tajikistan, and clothing from China, and some other agricultural products from China. Mm-hmm. And there was no reason for us going into Afghanistan while Osama bin Laden could have been um, taken away just by a drone to just go and destroy a country in that level. And this was uh, verified by uh, Hillary Clinton in her speech to the Congress and also Noam Chomsky has many uh, speeches on this yeah. Um, matter. Anand Gopal, let me, let me put that to you. Uh, I mean, we're focusing today and, you know, right, rightfully so on everything the U.S. has done wrong in the last few weeks. But is, is Afghanistan, 20 years after the U.S. went in, is it in any way better off? I mean, look, the, the Taliban actually controls more territory today than it did on 9-11-2001, which is just astonishing to think about. Um so many lives have been lost. Uh, of course, there's been a whole generation who benefited from so, some of the effects of the American presence, uh, including more people who've gone to school, um, more people who've had access to the internet, but that's come also with an extraordinary cost. So it's hard to say that it was really um, any positives if you, if you take the whole picture in, in, in account. And based on what you know, is there anything the U.S. could have done differently, realistically, um, you know, in, even in the last you know, 10 years uh, that would have made a big difference today. 
I think in the last 10 years, no. But if we go back to the beginning of the war, the Taliban actually surrendered after, after 2001. They went to their homes and the U.S. Um, could have tried to create a more inclusive Afghan government instead of trying to bring warlords and mercenaries essentially to make up the government. If they had actually tried to develop democratic institutions from the very beginning, instead of worrying mainly about counterterrorism, I think we would have been in a very different place today. And do we have any sense of like what the structure of government will be with the Taliban? I mean, who is there going to be a president? Is it going to be ruled by a council of uh, tribal members? I mean, what's it going to look like? very hard to say. And I think, to be honest, even the Taliban themselves don't have a clear answer on this, because I think they were even surprised at how rapidly they took the country. Um, the, the way Taliban rule was in the 90s was it was a kind of a council uh, of, of uh, basically mullahs or religious scholars who are, who are running the country. Hopefully this time around, uh, they'll understand that, you know, you need a much broader type of government to be able to be stable. And uh, will there be, uh, do you think, uh, relationships, diplomatic relationships with the U.S.? Well, I think so. Uh, I think the Taliban recognize, as other Afghan um, governments have recognized, that the country cannot survive without massive amounts of foreign aid. Uh, and I think the Taliban recognizes part of their legitimacy is tied to yeah. being tied, part of the international system. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to all of our guests this hour, Anango Paul, uh, Nahid Fatahi, as well as over in the city Hayward, Aisha Wahab. And thanks also to Craig Whitlock from The Washington Post earlier uh, in the hour. As I mentioned, President Biden will be speaking from the White House uh, in just a little bit. We'll be carrying that live, I'm sure, on KQED and NPR. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.